Today is April 4th, 2022. Happy Monday! This is Chu Yi Yang, the show's producer, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. We have a very special guest today, but before we get to that, here is a word from our sponsors. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast and the following message comes from Michigan State's Marketing Research Program and WX. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats, full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three course certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. This is episode 517, and yesterday was the 64th annual Grammy Awards ceremony, which was broadcasted live from Las Vegas at MGM Grand Garden Arena. The award ceremony featured guest performances from John Legend to Lady Gaga, with John Batiste taking home the most award with five one of which was for Album of the Year for We Are. Here is Freedom by John Batiste from the hit album, which this song was also nominated for Record of the Year. Our guest today is Emil Lamprecht, researcher, founder, CEO of Growth Mechanics. Growth Mechanics was formerly a global operator of accelerator programs for Google. Today, Growth Mechanics is an international startup studio working in women's health, software, social impact, and more. Emil is a career entrepreneur, advisor, and researcher. Sir, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. We met just yesterday, really, through the Research Ops Slack channel. I was very, I'm thrilled that you're willing to spend a few minutes with myself and our audience to talk about probably some of the more important topics. But I wanted to start with really a framework of your career. You started as a UX or user experience professional and then later became the chief experience officer at Whole Design Studio. Now, today you're obviously a serial founder and CEO of Growth Mechanics, uh, which 
as I already went through, is that startup accelerator. And an this is an interesting stat, the highest startup survival rate of any program globally. So I was curious what role UX plays in startup success. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think like most serial founders and like most people that become, you know, professional UX researchers or user researchers over time, the journey is is a winding road, right? It's never linear. I, I came to the whole topic of testing and interacting with customers through the failure of toys to succeed when going to market, right? So my first jobs were in toys and, and designing, basically a product designer, writing rule books for complicated games. And it's amazing how easy it is for that to go incredibly wrong <laughs> very quickly if you don't actually play with people. And, and the same kind of remains true for most startup services and products. The, the truth is that it's much easier to build a product that no one needs than it is to build one that is actually solving someone's problem. And so the, the biggest takeaway from all of the programs that we ran internationally across 36 different countries, the hundreds of entrepreneurs we've worked with is that if you, no matter what stage they're at, whether it's at the very, very earliest stage or even as far as series B, if they haven't done it at that point, getting them to proactively do an onboard qualitative user research to their product and service development process is the one single largest risk mitigation tactic that we were able to identify over all that time, all those products and services, all those countries. That is kind of the one truly universal methodology that you can instill in an organization and, and never really go wrong with it. So qualitative is so, so my background is a quant researcher. Mm -hmm. Qualitative is new, really new for me. I mean, I've done obviously focus groups, et cetera, et cetera, but I haven't been a believer in qualitative until mm -hmm. really the last five years. Do you see, is part of the reason that qualitative is so powerful is because it humanizes the customer journey or is there an intimacy that's built? Like, like why is qualitative the superpower? I mean, what you just said, yes, also important details of, of qualitative. And I mean, there's different levels of qualitative, right? I mean, even within quant, structures, you have qualitative opportunity, right? But I should clarify that when I use the word qualitative, I really do mean like a conversation like we're having, right? Like asking open questions, having a discussion. And the, the biggest and most important translation of why, regardless of who you are, it's critical is that quant, you know, the numbers and analytics or the outcomes you get from split tests or the survey numbers will do a very good job of explaining what is happening. But it's almost impossible for numbers after the fact to explain why it's happening. You may be able to take a good guess. Your experience may lend you to assumptions that are very close to the truth. You may feel that through your ego and experience of something you know as well as anyone what it will be. But the truth is you don't really know until you've had those conversations and have asked those people why, why it's happening. And if, if nothing else, even if you're right, all that process does is confirm that so that it's easier for everyone to make decisions in the same direction, in the same vein, along the same lines when it comes to product strategy and delivery, when it comes to service design and development. So that's, that's where qualitative stands out for me is really answering the why question especially if you have a whole lot of what, but you're unable to really sort out what to do with it, go ask why. That's absolutely critical.
it's interesting too that companies are faced with so much data, mm. not just survey data or self-reported data, but also tremendous amount of user data, uh, behavioral data, transactional data, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see the synthesizing of that data happening really in qualitative? That data informs, should inform what questions you go to ask in qualitative, ideally, in so much that the quantitative that you have all that behavioral analytical data implies something that you're not sure where it's coming from or why it's happening, or actually there is no data filling this gap. So you have all this user behavior, but no one is doing this thing, or there's this kind of blind spot because of how you did your analytical coverage on actually this outcome. So it's to, it could be used to fill that gap, or it can as I said before, just be used to verify the why something is happening, right? Like, so there's this user journey. We assume that they're on this behavioral path within the product or the service for X, Y, Z reasons, which means they want this outcome. But we still don't actually know unless we do one of two things. We build that outcome and deliver it to them, which is kind of a product first approach. And as long as you're really good at keeping it lean and iterative may be fine. It also depends on the scale of the organization, of course. But if you have the capacity to just go ask first, it saves you the time of a lot of wasted strategy, a lot of development or engineering resource being used for something that then may not be necessary at all. So, and, and when the agencies that we work with, you know, get called is, is usually, unfortunately, after they've already made that mistake, right? So user research agency work lives in this area where They've tried the product first method, possibly already several times, and it hasn't delivered the outcomes that they assumed it would based on the analytics they have, and they don't understand why. So they go to an agency and go, can you please tell us why, <laughs> why this is happening? And, you know, if there's so many agencies in the world doing that for so many organizations, it, you know, there's a hundred more companies in the world or thousands more companies in the world that, that aren't taking that extra step to go ask why. Right. So just, you know, start earlier with that question. You know, do we really know what's happening and how can we have a few conversations to validate or invalidate that assumption? It's so funny. I have a current project, Hub UX, and we just did our user analytics for the last year, uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that uh, 30 of our customers basically had a 90 day or 60 day plus window of not using the platform. Mm -hmm. And we've been racking our, like literally meeting it's we are we are the moron in the room right <laughs> and right now the light bulb goes off and i'm like why in the world don't i just ask yeah. the customer why but it's amazing how easy it is it like unless user research is your job it's amazing how easy it is to forget that like just calling a couple people yeah, right. is so much so. easier than sitting in a room thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and hoping yeah you know i i still mentor a lot of of start i don't participate in programs and we we only really sort of fringe support some impact programs now we don't run them operate them anymore fully but i still mentor for a bunch of them because i still like you know the brain exercise and everything and the conversation is always almost the same right especially when you're emotionally invested in something your your instinct is to sit there and think and make a decision and that's that's what's been communicated to you. That's what a lot of the, the entrepreneurship narrative that exists online forces on you is for you to just make decisions. 
But <laughs> if you go talk to a couple people, those decisions are far easier than debating and arguing with your team on who's right. You so know, because ultimately, it doesn't matter which team member is right. That's not right. the point. The point yeah. is, what does the customer actually need or want or require for this target outcome? And it's so easy to rely on existing data, user data, mm -hmm. to try and derive that decision as opposed or that point of view as opposed to, you know, just having the conversation, which is such an easy exercise. Anyway, wow. Thank you for that. And Pleasure. thanks for the on, on the fly mentoring. Let's shift gears a little bit, or maybe we won't shift gears a little bit. My question is, what do you see as the biggest problem that faces startups today? It's not so different the conversation we just had. But I think the only real difference between the conversation we had and my answer to this question is where the impetus comes from. So you know, in the example we just discussed, the impetus is just this kind of internal freezing that product teams have or, or founder teams have, which is that it, it's my decision, it's my assumption, therefore it should be right and the inability to tackle that. I think on the whole, in the greater startup ecosystem, it's a little more complex than that, clearly. The ecosystem is enormous and encompassing of, you know, now almost every type of business. Part of it for sure is that the predominant methodology that is now pervasive in the world of entrepreneurship globally comes from the VC narrative. So the venture capitalist narrative of startups and entrepreneurship, which is not how the majority of business in the world works. <laughs> so there's this weird imbalance between this is how you start and run a business VC narrative and 70% of all business globally. Um, and as a first-time entrepreneur, as a first-time founder, it's impossible to see past that. Why would you know <laughs> that there's, why would you know that there's a difference and why would you know that there's layers to look behind? So, and, you know, to the credit of some more progressive VCs, VCs are starting to understand the importance of knowing your customer. And some of the really progressive ones are starting to understand that that means actually having a conversation with customers and doing things like user research. But that's still the minority within a very loud ecosystem that they've built. And so, you know, the pressure to produce value in any form, whether that be the hiring of more people so that the total value of the company is more versus sales or acquisition or just acquisition instead of any sales to make it look like the company has more value because it has more reach, it has more touch points. The pressure comes on that so that, you know, the, because VCs ultimately their job is to make money off of the investment, right? That's, that's their prerogative. If you are genuinely out there trying to start and run a company or you're genuinely out there trying to solve a real human problem of some kind, those should not be your priorities. But the ecosystem will tell you from day one that they are your priorities regardless of your approach. And that's, it's very difficult to separate those narratives for first-time founders. And that for me is a pervasive issue that we did a really good job of combating with the programs that we ran for a while, but is ultimately still just the loudest, most consistent view of entrepreneurship and starting new companies. It's a psychological challenge, isn't it, for many first-time founders? And that pressure is that you've mentioned several times is very real from an expectation of finding product market fit and then scaling the business subsequently in a three-year time frame, which is not trivial 
yeah. as an outcome. Do you think there's a tremendous amount of waste inside of the current like VC framework? You know, I'm, oh, I'm thinking about like, ratios of one to 40, you know, of their investments. Oh, it's, it's much, it's much lower than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's much, much, much lower than that. So, so we did a couple in, in 2015 through 2017, as we started running these programs globally, we did these huge sort of ecosystem evals. And admittedly, we don't publish a lot of that data because it's taken in a pocket, right? Like it's not longitudinal is the word I'm looking for. It's not a longitudinal study. So it's not something that, you know, we're going to stand on forever. But, you know, we would take snapshots of an ecosystem within, you know, a several month or a year time frame and say, okay, what is actually happening? And there's a few really damning statistics. And again, this is a few years old and snapshots. So caveats for anyone listening. But in those moments, there were a few very damning statistics. One was that if you were a funded startup, statistically, there was a 99.3% chance that you were not going to live past your four. So if you were venture backed, you were extremely unlikely to live beyond the kind of four to seven year mark. Wow. Does death there mean acquisition, transaction, or does it mean like out of business? So this is part of the question. So how do we define failure? And we chose to define failure as anything that wasn't financially sustainable growth of the business proposition, of the product or service. Okay. Got it. So even if they're not profitable, if the right. revenue is not growing in accordance with the value growth of the company, right. then they're failing, right? And that means that often by the, if they've even, even if they've made it past the four-year mark or to the four-year mark, that next three-year gap, they're usually fire sold, you know, to a larger competitor, which, you know, some founders build companies specifically for that, but most don't, let's be honest, or they have to do some major industrial pivot, or um, they're given a whole new round of funding to become something entirely else. Or they, you know, close up the doors and, and walk away, which happens far more than is talked about. So that was one thing. The other thing was that you were more likely to fail as a startup within the same time frame if you joined an accelerator than if you didn't. <laughs> which was shocking and very upsetting. Though I have to admit, at the time that we did the study, not surprised. It's part of why we did it, because we were like, the numbers don't work. Like our numbers look great, but if you look at the ecosystem that we're about to build into, like this doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Like what is happening? And over and over and over again, that proved to be true. The other weird thing is that the success rate of companies overall is culture dependent. So hmm. different countries have sometimes substantially different ratios of success based on the cultural progressiveness of the entrepreneurship methodology which go figure often has to do with how that culture balances product versus customer focus in early stages of development. So these sorts of windows into ecosystems were kind of the, wow, this is actually like the, the standard communication, the common knowledge version of entrepreneurship is, is inherently not correct from the standpoint of a founder. As a statistics game for VCs or investors or other money, including founder money, like there, it could make sense. There's a reason why accelerators like YC and everything who invented this model, right? They invest in anywhere between 30 and 300 companies a year. It's a, it's a statistics game, you know, and they have a, a one to 3% win rate. 
because they're they're the best and they're the best at choosing but it's still yeah. only like a one to three percent win rate like it's that's not right. terribly high in the grand scheme of things once you start looking at these numbers and you kind of go okay wait maybe i should look at like what it means to develop something for a market that i can validate is there and has a real problem the need to have real conversations with real people is is emphasized quite dramatically and and once people kind of grasp that it becomes very easy to then make that a priority enough to at least hedge uh, and mitigate your own risks going into something whether or not you're vc backed at that point the world coming out of covid into this like not perpetual but maybe like seasonal shelter in place mm -hmm. has changed dramatically in the last 24 months uh, and probably will continue to evolve at a rapid rate uh, in ways that you know, people, most people can't see coming. So when you think about the future um, and your, your investment thesis, I like this little mental game of like, if I had $10, where would I invest that $10 with the intent mm -hmm. of like saying, you know, I would see like, you know, half of that go over here and maybe, you know, three of that 10 go over there. This isn't my lunch money, <laughs> just for clarity. I don't even know yeah. if you could buy lunch for $10 in most places. So anyway, yeah, if you had $10, mm. relatively speaking, that was a total pie chart for you uh, of your investable capital. Where would you invest that in a context of a five-year payback? I think I would first scrap the five-year and look at a 10-year payback. Okay. Uh, and then... I would focus on things that are solving institutionalized problems or humanized, like truly human problems, right? And that's, I mean, I'm biased, right? That's the whole mission of our organization and, and the startups that we start, but there's a reason there, right? So if I had, you know, a, a big pool of capital that I could push around or even just time to donate to a series of purposes, regardless of the money involved, there's a lot to be said for kind of the world of social impact and social business as is sort of pioneered by Muhammad Yunus and that whole sort of ecosystem. You know, some of the themes there that I think are most important, but will also be incredibly profitable when done well are financial inclusion. That's a, an enormous one. Infrastructural innovation is another huge point. So, so green adaptations, replacements of rapidly aging and deteriorating in, uh, infrastructure. You know, if you want to do the stock option thing, green energy is always a safe bet for the next 20, 30 years. So that's a no brainer and a personal passion of mine, which we've seen over and over again to be increasingly important, but also increasingly an opportunity for well done, ethically run businesses is gender inequality in medicine, race inequality is, as well, for sure. But gender maybe being one level above that, zooming out as in not level above in priority uh, and women's health in general being one of the least modernized areas of the health industry is, is a dramatic and upsetting area that is very profitable when done well and uh, has tons of room for incredible innovation and needs more more people do you see to it. women's health at a like global level or is it yeah centralized around specific countries no 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 it's it's actually far worse in a way in western countries because it's more institutionalized hmm. Let's use one of the standard things that we end up working a lot with, which is the world's most common adult bacterial infection is the urinary tract infection, right? 70% uh, of ER visits for around urinary tract infections are women, and a vast majority of them are women under 55. We're talking about like pandemic level seriousness of bacterial infections, right? 
the test that is used as the gold standard globally in all countries, including the West, is a single dipstick test, which is biased to a single bacteria type. And doctors are still taught in universities today. Oh, by the way, that dipstick was developed for a different reason, testing something on pregnant women only in the 1950s. So like we're talking super old school technology biased to a single pathogen in a world where no infection is single pathogen anymore, probably never was anyway, and touted as the world standard for what? For detecting E. coli in people's pee. Like it's, you couldn't be farther from assisting people with a consistent problem than that. That's, it's just a complete inadequacy of the medical facility. And, you know, people often then come back when I start talking about this stuff, you know, about aging medical standards around like, oh, well, you know, all the only other option is, you know, like new agey alternative shit. And the problem is people don't realize that that's not the only option. There are people doing much more innovative, much more intelligent testing, much more comprehensive diagnostics, much more integrative styles of medicine. They're just few and far between still. But that is part of the medical industry that will surface and take over, particularly in the face of gender and race inequality in medicine. And it needs as much help as it can get and as much innovation as it can, as people have the engineering capacity to, to provide. It is interesting how in the world, the better mousetrap doesn't always win. And in a lot of ways, you know, you could come up with whatever, and it probably already exists, right? The better testing approach uh, technology. Um, and yet we have built these habits in our lives that are very difficult, even at an institutional level to uh, structurally yeah. change. So a big part of like growth is figuring out how you can infiltrate those uh, institutional ways of, of figuring, of learning and, and teaching to uh, affect change in, in that agenda. Absolutely. And I, and I will say, I mean, that's the caveat of the list of things that I gave, right? Financial inclusion, infrastructure, health. The caveat against these as industries is that they're policy driven, which means they're incredibly difficult to safely innovate within and particularly be a, you know, sort of strappy startup within. It's quite hard without just being very surface level to the problem. But people are getting better at it and governments are slowly getting better at adopting or at least leaving paths for innovation to come through for that. And those opportunities need to be taken as, as much as possible, for sure. And the speed of adoption of the core changes is also really important to understand. Um, one of the things that I've been really surprised at in the U.S. is the politicalization of the immunization process for COVID. And mm. so that's, you know, a, I'm not sure what, like how speed played into that. But anyway, it's, it, it is a really interesting topic. Okay. My last question, what is your personal motto? I, I don't really believe in, in mottos, and that's a little bit just for the sake of being contrarian, but um, <laughs> it's it's also to enforce the fact that I don't think anyone should live their life off quote. I don't think anyone should live their life off of a single quip or anecdote. I think that is a huge human mistake to think we're intelligent enough to determine decisions based on one concept thought of years and years and years ago. Philosophy has never stood still. So why should our ideas about, you know, what is right and wrong in the moment stand still? I, I just think that's silly. So what I prefer instead, <laughs> and that's not to say that I don't have something, but it's not a motto. 
what I prefer instead and what I, you know, this is in part how I approach business and, and our teams as well, but it's also just on a personal level important to me is this concept of having, of, of having principles, basically. And principles are something that are different than a motto because you design them with the intention to review and update. <laughs> so I might have a few principles or for a specific thing that I'm learning or training, I might have a principle that turns into a mantra, right? Like a reminder in this moment. If something goes wrong, this is my reminder. I need to have this reminder. You know, so like my mantra right now, I'm after seven years of not skiing, I'm relearning how to like hardcore ski. And <laughs> my I have very simple mantras because they need to be simple right now, right? So when things start to go long, wrong and I have a wobble, tense your abs, bend your knees. <laughs> it's very, very cut and dry. Like I need to remember those two things because they will save me. But once I've evolved to the point where that is then natural and instinctual again. And I don't have to consciously remind myself I will need new principles. I will need new mantras of ways of keeping myself safe as I push my skill level further, or as I put myself in more dangerous downhill or backcountry situations, right? So, you know, that's a very simple example. Life is never that simple. So the way you look at principles for life choices are probably going to be more complex than tense traps and bend your knees. But the <laughs> principle of principles is the same right? You need to design something with the intention to readdress. And, and how you readdress that is up to you. You can do it quarterly like you would a OKR, or you can do it, you know, once every year, that's fine. But I'm not a fan of sticking to, uh, to single points of reference when it comes to life decisions. Just for short periods of time. Just for short periods of time. And that might mean, and you know, that might mean I have four, five, six, never more than seven, because the male brain doesn't really memorize more than six, seven items very well. That's statistically proven. So try to keep it under seven if you're male. If you're female, tactically, you could go up to 13. You have that advantage, but I still think that's too many. So, you know, three to seven principles that help you make decisions this year or this month. And set yourself a date on when you're going to reevaluate them, because based on what's going on in your life, some of them are going to be still the same. Some of them are going to be no longer relevant at all. And some of them will have evolved to be more advanced. Our guest today has been Emil Lamprecht, researcher, founder, and CEO of Growth Mechanics. Sir, thank you very much for joining us on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Everybody else, have a great rest of your day.